John chapter one, beginning in verse one, it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. This last week I received a mailer. And in big, bold letters, there was a question and an answer on the cover of this mailer. It said, do you sometimes feel like there's a hidden enemy working against your life? And I said, yes. In bigger and bolder letters, the answer came. There is. So quickly, I looked at the uh, return address. And the return address said, Church of Scientology of Colorado. That's when I knew that the mailer was up to no good. The question was a perfectly good question. And the answer was an incomplete but at least acceptable initial Response, But the question asked and answered invites the recipient of the letter to embark on a bizarre journey, an outlandish fabrication, a revelation of sorts, but not from God, but from L. Ron Hubbard. Now, L. Ron Hubbard was a science fiction writer in the 1930s and 40s. He was the founder of Scientology. He wrote a book called Dianetics. And shortly before I was born and shortly before the space program was born... The Church of Scientology was born in their peculiar belief system. They don't define God or the supreme being the way we would or the way that the the Bible describes God. L. Ron Hubbard described human beings as thetons, immortal spirits with unlimited power over their own universe. But there was a problem. They were unaware of their abilities and powers. Imagine being an an immortal person with unlimited power in your own universe, but you have cosmic Alzheimer's. You have some sort of dementia which causes you to forget that you're an unlimited being with unlimited power. They adopted Hinduism and certain forms of Buddhism. Jesus is rarely mentioned in Scientology, but according to Scientologists, he's not the creator According to Scientologists, Jesus is what was known as an operating thetan. That means in control of supernatural powers, cleared from mental defects. In their way of thinking, Jesus didn't die for your sin. In their view, there really is no such thing as sin, at least the way the Bible describes it. And therefore, there's never a need to repent. Salvation is escape, freedom from the endless cycle of reincarnation. In order to achieve this freedom, you have to work with an auditor for a price. For a certain amount of money, they'll sit down with you and they'll help rid you of your hang-ups. And when you've spent $2,000, dollars $30,000 then you might get clear. You might be able to build a bridge to what they call total freedom. In the Scientologist's view, there is no such thing as hell. Hell is a myth. And you're able to form healthy relationships, ensure personal and financial success, and promote your own happiness when you get clear of these Ingrams. So in the little letter that I had, the question kept coming, are you your own worst enemy? 
And then this statement. Research shows that people can unknowingly ruin their own relationship, keep themselves from financial success, prevent their own happiness. Even the Scientologist knows there's something wrong with the world. We certainly live in a world of ruined relationships and poverty and misery and unhappiness. We live in a world where we hurt others and we are sometimes hurt. We live in a broken and a fallen world. What is wrong with this world? How did it get here? Why are we here? Who made us? And John invites us to embark on on a journey, but unlike Scientology, which is a science fiction fabrication, what John does is he offers to give us a factual instead of a fantastic explanation of why we are here, who we are, and who Jesus is. Was Jesus an ordinary rabbi who the early disciples fabricated outlandish claims about in order to meet life's deepest questions like Dan Brown believes in the Da Vinci Code? Was he an avatar or a guru like the New Age claims? Or was he the world's first revolutionary communist? Was he a feminist? Was he a socialist? Was he a Democrat? Was he a Republican? Was he a great prophet along the line of prophets as claimed by certain sects of Judaism and Baha'i? Was Jesus a misunderstood teacher who was murdered for his message? In a famous passage in the New Testament, in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, while Jesus is walking on the road to a place called Caesarea Philippi, he gathers his disciples together in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, and he asks the question, who do men say that I am? According to the emergent church and postmodern criticism, the answer is, who do you want me to be? Today, if Jesus could gather all people in all places and ask the question again, Who do men say that I am? The right answer is, it all depends on who you ask. The right response should be, who do you say you are? Is Jesus the spirit brother of Lucifer like the Mormons claim? Is Jesus the archangel Michael as the Jehovah's Witnesses claim? Is Jesus the perfect man but not God as claimed by the Unification Church? Is Jesus the man who displayed the Christ idea as Christian science teaches or Christ consciousness as the unity school of thought believes? Or was Jesus the original nature lover, a spiritual teacher who taught love and compassion but didn't really care about gross forms of sin, sexual perversion as his Taught in Wicca and witchcraft is Jesus Esau, the most respected prophet of the uh, over 124,000 prophets sent by Allah. Is Jesus a fraud? Is he a liar? Is he a magician? Is he a polygamist? Is he a lunatic? A crazy guy with schizophrenia who believed that he talked with God but really didn't? Or was he the Lord? John's gospel opens with this powerful statement about the identity of Jesus as God's Messiah. And as John begins us to give us an invitation and then 
instruction concerning his identity, John presents Jesus as eternal, as creator, and life itself. In the opening chapter, John will present five powerful arguments of why Jesus was and is divine God who takes on human flesh, one person with two natures, completely God, completely human. He'll describe messianic credentials. Jesus is eternal according to verses 1 and 2. Jesus is creator according to verses 3 and 5 and verse 9. Jesus is life in and of itself, true life in verses 4 and 5 and verses 10 through 13. As a matter of fact, Jesus makes known or manifests the glory of God in verses 14 through 17. Jesus explains God in verse 18. He becomes the explanation for all that is and all that concerns God. Throughout the gospel, John will contrast light and darkness fullness and emptiness. He's going to talk about what we long for and what we hunger for and what we thirst for and how Jesus is the provision for our hunger and our thirst and our deepest longing. He's going to ask questions and then provide answers about what it means to live and what it means to die. And what it means to come back to life. We begin with the living word is eternal. Look what it says in verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The Bible is a book about beginnings. In Genesis, we have the beginning of time. In the book of Revelation, we have the beginning of eternity. In John's Gospel, we have what we would call the beginning of salvation. When it says, in the beginning was the Word, John invites you to go back further than anyone has ever gone before. In Matthew's Gospel, we begin with the genealogy of Jesus. In Luke's Gospel, we begin with a genealogy. But here in John's Gospel, he invites the reader to go back before the there was a heaven and before there was an earth, before there was a beginning, he asks and invites you to think about what life was like before there was anything in the created world. And he invites you then to go further back. A billion years, a hundred billion, billion years, a thousand trillion, trillion years. He asks you to come up with a number and go back further than anyone has ever gone. And then reminds you that you haven't even gotten close to being there. He asks you to think the furthest thought that you could possibly think. And Jesus is there in the beginning. The concept, the philosophical concept of origins is called cosmology. As a matter of fact, it isn't unusual to people ask the question, why is there something rather than nothing? But no secular scientist has been able to come up with a satisfying solution to that question. John begins with the gospel. And he begins with the word. John introduces Jesus as the word. The Greek term is logos and it means fundamentally a word 
to communicate. Jesus, according to John, is the express communication of God. He is the wisdom of God. Imagine you could ask God anything. Imagine that we could stand at the throne room of God and we can ask God anything that your, that your heart could imagine, that your mind could conceive. And God's answer in part is in Mark chapter 9 verse 7 and Luke chapter 9 verse 35. Do you remember when Jesus was being baptized by John? He was baptized. The 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 sky opened and a voice proclaimed from heaven, this is my beloved son, hear him. Whatever question you have, God invites you to ask Jesus for the answer. As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two said, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the father by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Jesus is the word of God. He is The image of God. He is the expression of God. He is the wisdom of God. He is the express communication of God. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. It certainly doesn't tax our imagination to go back before the beginning and to try to go back further than anyone has ever gone before. And as you go back further and further and further and further, you discover something that God is a self-existent being who had no beginning. Children, sometimes adults, will call my radio program and they'll ask this question. Okay, who made God? The right answer? Nobody made God. You see, there are two classes of being in the universe. Beings that were made, and then one being. An uncreated creator. A self-existent God. Ivor Powell, in his wonderful book, The Names of Christ, He writes, John taught that the Father and the Son were one. They were co-equal and co-existent. The apostle believed that when he listened to Jesus, he heard the voice and message of the Father. He was sure that when he gazed into the face of Jesus, he saw the face of God. John tells us that Jesus, as the word of God, is pre-existent, eternal. John tells us before creation, Jesus was there. The Word didn't become the Word, but rather has always been the Word. He was in the beginning with God. God is eternal and unchanging. Jesus is eternal and unchanging. The writer of Hebrews says He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the Word was. In the beginning, the Word was. It's the Greek word in. It's the imperfect tense of imi, which is the verb to be or I am. Here it means continuous existence without beginning or origin. The world was created in time, but the word, the word has always existed. 
We know this too. Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 5. Before his crucifixion, he prays, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus claims to be preexistent and coexistent. In Psalm 90, verse 2, the psalmist writes, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and world, even from everlasting, you are, ever, you are God. So John tells us that Jesus was preexistent and coexistent. He was and is face to face with God forever. The word with is pros. The idea is that the word is with God in being, with God and acting toward God. Jesus is a distinct person who shares the same substance and character as the Father. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. They are distinct as persons, and yet God is indivisible. There are not two gods. There are not three gods. There are not nine gods. There are not hundreds of gods or millions or billions of gods. There is only and will ever be only one God. Over and over again, Deuteronomy 6.4 is reiterated throughout the Bible. It's called the Shema. It goes, Shema Israel, Adonai, Eloheinu, Echad, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is Echad, one. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6 and 45, verse 5 reminds us, the Lord himself says, before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. The self-existent God, was there a self-existent God that existed before this self-existent God? The answer is no. In the not-too-distant future or in the distant future, will there be another being who is the self-existent God? The Bible's answer is no. For the person who claims that human beings are gods, they are wrong. Here's the shocking news, whether you want to hear it or not. You are not now and you never will be God. No, you didn't used to be God and you forgot. As a matter of fact, you came into existence. Remember what I said to you? That it doesn't tax the imagination to believe that God has always been. But it might tax the imagination for you to remember that if you go back before the beginning and you travel with God through eternity past, that there was never a time that he didn't know you and think about you. You see, in eternity past, God loved you. God knew you and dreamed about the day that you would come into existence. God orchestrated and fabricated the known universe in order to build a circumstance where you could come into being and your sins could be forgiven and you could be reconciled to God. There has never been a time, there has never been a time that he wasn't completely aware as you march into eternity future of when you would come into existence and how you would live and who your mother and father would be. He knew about your wickedness and he knew about your weirdness and he knew about your sin. Sin, and he knew about your failure and he knew that he would send a son, his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for you so that 
you could experience friendship and fellowship and love with him. All existence exists for God to fully and finally accomplish all that he had always planned. There's never been a time when he didn't love you. And there's never a day that goes by, not even one day, not even one moment, that he doesn't love you specifically, individually. You might think, how could God love me like that? You're about to find out. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. The Old Testament teaches that creation is the work of God's hand. Remember, in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. In Psalm 102, verse 25, uh, Psalm 102, verse 25, it says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. The Bible teaches the answer to the question, who created the universe? The answer is, Jesus Christ created all things. The expression translated all things is a single Greek word. It's the Greek word panta. Pan means universal. Panta carries with it the idea of all things down to the fine details, every single detail, each and every element, each and every person, whether physical or spiritual, all things seen and unseen, all things came into existence through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the architect. Jesus is the builder. Jesus is the supplier. Jesus is the sustainer. And if that were all, it would be enough, but there's more. Not only is he the architect, not only is he the builder, not only is he the sustainer, but he's the savior. He is the person who loves you and is willing to redeem you. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, when Paul was in prison and when he was in prison in Rome and when he had a lot of time to carefully think about these things, Paul came to the conclusion in Colossians 1, 16, for by him, that is by Jesus, for by Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were were created through him and for him. The expression were made means everything, all matter, all energy, everything in the universe. And you know what? We now know the universe is not self-existent and therefore matter is not eternal. We've always known for those who have believed the Bible when the Bible says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. For every person who ever picked up a Bible and read Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created. Everyone who has ever picked up a Bible, who has ever come to know Jesus, knows that Jesus created the universe. As a matter of fact, not only is the universe not self-existent, Matter is not eternal. Matter and energy have no way to order or organize in and of themselves. Left alone by themselves, matter and energy reach a point of what scientists call absolute disorder, maximum randomness. Scientists call this the principle of entropy. First year students of physics learn the second law of thermodynamics. 
they understand all matter and energy tends towards maximum randomness. Available energy in any closed system decreases through time. Notorious skeptics like Isaac Asimov predicted that the universe would reach a point that he called heat death when all available energy will have been used up. All order in the universe would cease. Everything biological, everything mechanical would grind to a halt since matter and energy only have a disordering principle rather than an ordering principle. Some ordering principle must exist Otherwise, everything would be absolutely random. Paul writes about this in the book of Colossians. And he says, everything that exists is held together by Jesus. Isaac Asimov. Isaac Newton. Einstein. Stephen Hawking. They spent their life looking for the great unifying principle, the one formula, the one explanation of all things that exists. But any child who can pick up his or her Bible, who can read John 1, 1, can know the answer to what plagues the most intelligent people in, the, in, in this world. Jesus is the answer. <laughs> It was J. Vernon McGee who used to say, a lot of young people today are saying, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. My friends, it all depends on what the question is. If the question is, how did the world come into existence? The answer is Jesus. If the question is, why am I here? The answer is Jesus. If the question is, why am I so messed up? The answer is, our world is broken. Our mother and our father sinned in rebellion. They rejected the God who made them. They rejected his revelation. They disobeyed his word. And it's hurt us terribly. Since matter and energy can only have a disordering principle rather than an ordering principle, something must exist. The Bible claims that that something is Christ. Jesus is the much sought after unifying principle that explains all things. And since all matter and energy tend irreversibly toward maximum randomness, and since the universe is not maximally random today, it could not have been tending in that direction forever. That means that matter and energy aren't eternal. There was a time when it didn't exist. And since nothing comes from nothing, something other than matter and energy must have existed before matter and energy existed. Ah, there's the rub. What is that something? For many scientists, they'll say, can't be the God of the Bible. Maybe it's something, but it's, it's certainly not the God of the Bible. Hey, we're really left with only two options. Here's option number one. Either nothing truly exists, like Hindu, Maya, like gurus of old would say, everything is an illusion. You are not really here. I am not really here. Lights are not here. Ground is not here. Broncos, certainly they're not here. <laughs> or, 
We believe that there's matter. There's energy. And something else. Something else. The Bible teaches that God created all things ex nihilo, out of nothing. God didn't take some part of himself. He didn't take some aspect of himself. He didn't take a pin and bleed some part of his essence in order to produce the raw material which provides the fabrication of the universe. The Bible says that he spoke and the worlds came into existence. As a matter of fact, John lays his axe to the foundation of pantheism and panentheism. John recognizes that, that everything isn't God. As a matter of fact, that God exists quite apart from his creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Jesus Christ is the one who created all things in general. He is the one who created everything down to the tiny specific details. Jesus is the active agent. Jesus is the person who made all things. In 1 Corinthians 8, 6, it says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Is there anything? Is there anything at all that falls outside of Christ's creative function? Is there anything made? Is there anything or anyone who exists apart from Christ? The answer is, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In case you're wondering, the expression, not nothing, or without him, Nothing, or in the original language, not nothing. Oide, hen. Here, here, it's so specific that in the Greek language, John is saying, if he's saying anything else, he's saying it meant not one thing, not one single thing, not one single detail. What, what, not, not one tiny detail was left out apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. This means that randomness is not the answer to how the universe came into existence. And someone will call me on my radio program. Okay, if that's true. Okay, if you're such a smart guy. Okay, if God is such a good God, then why did he make the devil? Well, the right answer is. He didn't make the devil. God created angelic beings. He created a perfect being. He created a, a perfect being named Lucifer who was the image of glory and, and tranquility. He was the image of beauty and glory, the perfection of intelligence. And Lucifer had an unbelievable job to bring glory and honor to the living God of heaven. And he was given the ability to choose or to choose otherwise. That he could, in and of himself, make the choice to love God. Not because he had to, but because he wanted to. Because real love and real relationship requires the ability to make a real choice. And Satan made the wrong choice. He elevated himself above God. And sin came into the world. 
Now John lays his axe to the philosophical concepts of chaos and chaos theory and random selection and random evolutionary processes. John tells us in no uncertain stammering or ambiguous terms, this is God's universe down to the tiniest detail. That if you look at every distant Galaxy, if you look at all of the incredible astronomical phenomenon, if you could take a, a, a telescope where you don't even need a telescope to see Antares, the largest bright object naked to the visible eye, a hundred million times larger than our sun, bigger than our solar system, created and placed in a vacuum a hundred million times brighter than our sun. That if you look at every single star, every cold comet, every orbiting planet, everything from the largest observable phenomenon to the smallest incomprehensible particle, it belongs to Jesus. And he exposes the notion held by some that if there is a God, that he's unconcerned about the details. And he exposes the lie for what it is, that God doesn't care that if there really is a God that big and that if he created this universe, then he couldn't care about you. And nothing could could be further from the truth. As a matter of fact, God wouldn't be God. The Bible teaches that he does sweat the small stuff, that he understands every single person's hair on every single head. I know that that doesn't seem all that dramatic to some of you. But the reality is. He knows every petal that falls from every flower. Every swallow. That falls to the earth. And every person who's lost their way. He's absolutely concerned about the emptiness and the wickedness and the darkness and the loneliness. He is absolutely aware of everything that you're going through. The problems in the universe don't stem From a lack of concern. God is concerned. He's not distant. He's not removed. He's not unfeeling. He's not uncaring. He's not unkind. He's not detached. The problem is sin. The problem in the universe stems from the creatures who stand in rebellion, who reject him, who embrace thoughts and ideas and actions that substitute the truth of Christ for the lies of selfish, indulgent human beings. Every single problem that we face comes because we don't give adequate consideration to the identity and the reality and the salvation that's found in Jesus. The answer to the world's problems doesn't lie in a permanent renewable energy source. It isn't a solution to global warming. It isn't food and water supplies. It isn't a just government. It isn't a just government system. It isn't a winning season for the Rockies. But God knows I want them to win today. And I want the San Diego Padres to lose. It isn't a winning season for the Broncos. The answer is in Christ. The only way people can set their lives in order is to turn from their sin and turn to Jesus and to recognize that he is the full and the final solution to the problem of of estrangement from God. And look at this. The living word 
is the creator and the living word is eternal. But look what else. The living word is life. Look at verse 4. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The statement is so overwhelming. It is so enormous in its scope that it is impossible for me to even tell you what it means. But let me at least give you some thoughts. If you're one of those people who underlines your Bible, you should probably underline in him was life. The word life is zoe. It's self-existent life. It's life not dependent on anyone or anything. Look what it says. In him was life. Not in religion. It doesn't say in Catholicism is life, in Protestantism is life, in Arminianism there's life, in Calvinism there's life, in Presbyterianism there is life. There's, there, it, it doesn't say any of those things. It doesn't say in Evangelicalism there's life, in Calvary Chapel there's life, in Geno there's life, in you there's life. Look what it says. Read it for yourself. In him was life. John does the unthinkable. He doesn't point people to a religion. He points people to a relationship with a true person. And in the play by William Shakespeare, some of you are familiar with Macbeth. The main character sums up the emptiness of his evil life. His wife has died. And in a poetic tribute to his wife, he says these words, Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Like Solomon, who wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. In Him was life. You see, the reality is, if life isn't in Jesus, then there is no hope. There is no forgiveness of sin. There is no reconciliation with the Father. In John's gospel, life is summed up not in a philosophy, not in a religion, not in a theological construct, but in a person. And the answer to the questions about life and about meaning and about purpose and about forgiveness and about hope and about death and about sin and about salvation and redemption and estrangement from God and reconciliation to God are all... According to John, found in a person. In him was life. And look what it says. That life was the light of men. That life was the light of men. Question. What is our basic need? Food? Clothing? Shelter? air. What is it that we need? What is our basic fundamental necessity? We need life. We need light. You know what's interesting? We all have life. 
everyone who's listening to my voice. And if you're not listening to my, my voice, that's okay. It doesn't mean you're dead. It just means, you, you know, you're thinking about other things. But our life is corrupted and decaying. Each and every one of us are living and dying at exactly the same time. Jesus brought into the world eternal life. The kind of life that is incorruptible. Undying. And John's gospel is written to ask and answer the question. How do we get this life? How do we get that kind of life? John's answer, it's faith in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, if you go 10 chapters into the book in John chapter 10, verse 28, it says, Jesus speaking, he says, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Human beings are in the process of physically dying. And those apart from God and Christ are spiritually dead. Man is spiritually dark and dead. We are in the dark. According to the Bible, we are unable to communicate with God. We're trapped by our own sin. We're unable to communicate. In 1 Corinthians 2, 14, it says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them. In John 3, Jesus is talking to the religious leader of the Jews, Nicodemus. And in verse 19, he says, And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. We're in trouble. Unless a light shows up. And look what it says in verse 5. The light does show up. And the light, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In the Greek language, it could also mean apprehend. What does Jesus mean? Or what does John mean? And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is unable to lay hold of it, or apprehend it, or comprehend it. The verb is an interesting word. It's katalambano. It literally or fundamentally means in the Greek language to lay hold of. It means to grab or to seize, depending on on the context of how it's used, it means to mentally grasp something. It's like when you're in school and people are trying to explain algebra to you or they're trying to explain government to you and you either get it or you don't get it. It can also mean to seize by force, even to take with hostile intent. It can mean to grab. Here I think the meaning is the light came and the darkness tried to extinguish it, to overwhelm it, to put it out and was unable to do so. Have you noticed that the characteristic of the smallest light is that it can take a whole ton of darkness And that even if you take something that's a hundred 
million times the size of our sun and place it in the vacuum of darkness, it has the ability to communicate to us some semblance of its light. What do you do in the great darkness of our sin and estrangement from God? The greatest, the brightest light appears. It is the person of Jesus Christ. I think that that's what what John means, that the darkness failed to overcome it. And Jesus confirms this in chapter 3, verse 21, where Jesus says, But he who does the truth comes to the light, and that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. In order for the darkness to go away, you have to come to the light. John introduces us to a Jesus who is the eternal God, equal with God, essentially God, God in nature, God in person, God in personality, God in character, God in attributes, God in conduct. But there are people who go, he's not really God. In their new book, Putting Jesus in His Place, The Case for the Deity of Christ, my friend Rob Bowman, who's going to be here on Saturday, along with Ed Komaszewski, they use a memory aid to spell out the New Testament's case for the deity of Jesus. They use the word hands. I like that. Hands. The H stands for honor. The A stands for attributes. The N stands for names. The D stands for deeds. The S stands for seat. He goes on and he says, hey, look, Jesus has all the glory of God. He has worshiped like God. He's prayed to like God. They sing to him like God. You have faith in him like God. You love him like God. He has the attributes of God. He is creator. He is eternal. He is preexistent. He is uncreated. He is immutable. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. In his names, Jesus is called God, Lord, Yahweh, King of kings, Lord of lords, Savior. I am first and last. He has deeds like God. He rules over nature. He speaks the word of God. He forgives sin. He raises the dead. He judges all people and he sits on God's throne. If he isn't God, who is he? Well, as we continue our study in John's gospel. He is the incarnate Christ, the miraculous Christ, the uplifted Christ, the satisfying Christ, the bread of life, the light of the world, the good shepherd, the resurrection and life, the king, the savior, the Christ who rises from the dead, never ever to die ever again. Here's what I promise you. If you read this book carefully and prayerfully, You won't ever discover everything that it can tell you. It's like a gigantic lake that that goes on forever. That you can come to and drink from and it never goes dry. And you never ever have to worry that you can drink all that's in it. But you'll always be satisfied. You exist because Jesus made you. You exist to know Him and to love Him. 
You exist so that you could be forgiven by Him and have friendship and relationship with Him. And that's just the beginning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Jesus, that life is in Him, that life isn't in the expectations of others, that life isn't in our sin and in our failure, that life is in Jesus and that we can come to Him because He's come to us and died for us in order to be the satisfying solution to the problem of sin and Savior forever. And Lord, I pray for every person within the sound of my voice that no matter how weak, no matter how weird, no matter how wicked their circumstances, that they would pray this prayer. Lord, I want to fulfill the reason why I exist. I want to know you and love you and walk with you and be with you. I don't want to walk in wickedness and sin. I want my sins to be forgiven and I trust that Jesus can do that. I'm placing my full and my final confidence in Him. Forgive me and transform me. Cause me to walk in newness of life. And if that's you, pray that prayer. Mean it from your heart and God will do it for you. He'll come into your life. He'll walk with you in friendship and companionship. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.